Welcome to part one of my conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, David Kennerly. By the way, if you're only listening to us, make sure you go on to my website, tanyaackershow.com, because this is my first ever episode that I'm doing it in video. I had to record it in video because you have to see David's pictures. David has photographed every living president since LBJ, who of course is not still alive, but he's photographed all the ones who still are. He has documented nation-shaping events from the assassination of Robert Kennedy to the horrors of 9-11 to three presidential impeachments to the time a president sat down before Congress and answered all of their questions. And that was not an episode of the Twilight Zone Friends, that was just the 1970s. So the reason I wanted to sit down and talk with David. And by the way, we had our conversation months ago. It was before the COVID-19 pandemic. It was before the protests uh, that took place in response to violence against African-Americans that have galvanized uh, so much of the world. Uh, it, It took place before all that. And the reason that I wanted to talk to him was because I thought that his perspective would really be useful. Uh, I thought it would help put things in context so that we wouldn't be either too despondent or too comfortable. Well, since we had our conversation, I think that we have erupted into a full-blown crisis. And I don't think there's any possibility of anybody being too comfortable about anything. I think that perspectives like those of David's are more valuable now than ever. So without further ado, here's part one of my conversation with David Kennerly. Joining me today is Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer David Kennerly. David has been capturing American history for 50 years. He's photographed every American president since Richard Nixon. Actually, since LBJ. He's photographed every American (laughs) president since Lyndon Baines Johnson. He has documented nation-shaking events from the assassination of Robert Kennedy to 9-11. He's been alongside moments of history that we cannot and should not forget. Thank you, David, for joining me today. It really is an honor to speak with you. Thank you. Good to see you again. So you said, um, I heard an interview with you where you said that when you were young, you always dreamt about being somewhere else. Is that what led you to be a photographer? Well, I came from Roseburg, Oregon, so it was a big stretch to want to go somewhere or be somewhere besides there. Uh, even though now it looks pretty good, it's a, a little town in Oregon. And uh, yeah, I've, I was a dreamer, daydreamer. Uh, I was a lousy student because I was always looking out the window, what wondering what was going on out there and, uh, and started taking pictures when I was probably 12, 13 years old. And that was my escape. When did it feel like to be published at such an early age? Well, that one... Um, it's not quite my first published picture, but it's it's close. Uh, and uh, no, in '62, my first published photo was in the Orange Jar, Roseburg High School newspaper, and I think that's what really got me—the fact that something I created would be published. And uh, the Fosbury one came not too long afterwards. But what's great about Fosbury, and this is why I do this, that's a documentation one of the first known pictures of him doing what's called the Fosbury flop, which was uh, high jumpers twisting over and going over backwards. And he won the Olympic uh, gold medal in 1968. And I think to this day, everybody now jumps like Fosbury did. Jumping backwards. Right. You twist around and go and he got more height out of it. And it it was uh, um, 
it was pretty phenomenal, really. And, and that, but that's a perfect example of why I do what I do. Why? Because I took take you to the scene. You, you through that photograph, you can see one of the first known instances of uh, of Fosbury doing something in athletics that changed the whole nature of the game. One of the things that's really extraordinary about your career is that I'm you've still alive. been... <laughs> well, you that's survived. That's like, you know, that day after the Pulitzer, it's a, it's a sign. You know, if they didn't get you then... There were other instances, yeah. If they didn't get you then. But you've been present and captured uh, so many history-making moments. June 5th, 1968, uh, you are at the Ambassador Hotel... Uh, where Senator Robert Kennedy is making a campaign stop. You take this picture. He's at the podium. Uh, his wife, Ethel, is next to him. They're very joyful. How shortly before Senator Kennedy's assassination did you take this picture? Well, he. this was the 91, the California primary. Um, and he had lost Oregon and which was a, a major defeat. I mean, the sequence of those primaries was very different, was different then than it is now. And um, this is another good example of, if you look at the film, when he gave that V sign, he did it for uh, like a, a just a second. And uh, a lot of my photographs, uh, that they capture this moment uh, if it were sports, it would be like uh, the peak action, really. Or so. but, but here he's doing the V sign. Mrs. Kennedy's behind him. You see the Ambassador Hotel sign. He turned after this and walked back into the kitchen. I would say he was shot less than a minute later after this picture was taken. And one of the other uh, photographers was in the room, the UPI photographer, my colleague, so I wasn't there when he got shot in the room, but, but I did run outside, and uh, I don't know if you have that picture. I have a picture of Ethel in the back of the ambulance. But th this is a really traumatic night for me because I'd met Kennedy. Um, I have a picture with me and Robert Kennedy. It was taken about an hour before this happened upstairs in the suite. Um, and... Uh, I was uh, 21 years old this night. And it was a, not only a personal, uh, personally difficult, but that was a national tragedy. It's conceivable he could have gone on to become the president of the United States uh, instead of Richard Nixon. It's one of many national tragedies that you've documented. Uh, you were on the ground at the Pentagon on 9-11 uh, you captured another uh, iconic photo of the dark smoke billowing up from the Pentagon. What was it like to be there in that particular moment? I mean, because you had to, nobody well, knew what was going on. I mean, no, you didn't no. know what was going to happen next. I had, that morning, I had, I was watching, um, as I usually do, I had, uh, I think, CBS Morning News on. And they had gone live uh, from the World Trade Center with kind of a static shot and said that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. Everybody thought it was some kind of a horrible accident. And you could see the outline where the plane went in. The, nobody knew how big it was. It was, uh, uh, and, and I'm watching 
live as this other jet comes and hits the other tower. That, that hands down is the most shocking moment of my life out of all the stuff that I've seen firsthand. Yes, it was on TV, but it was, it was live. In fact, uh, a similar experience was watching the space shuttle go up live when it blew up the challenger. And, uh, but this was hands down the worst and there was no question. This was an attack. Uh, so I then immediately, I was working for Newsweek magazine at the time. I was not too far away from there. A couple blocks, I went down to the Newsweek office because it appeared uh, that something else could happen. Maybe they were going to attack the U.S. Capitol. We have, of course, nobody knew what was going on. And that picture I took, uh, and I didn't see it hit, but uh, it was right after the plane crashed into the Pentagon. And I'm up in the Newsweek office on the other side of the river. So it's a ways away from there, but it was a clear view of it. And uh, to the left uh, was the U.S. Capitol, which I could always see, and I had my camera on that on a tripod, thinking maybe there'll be another one, so I was ready. So I kind of got frozen there. And then uh, uh, early the next day, I went over to the Pentagon. I was there because the Secretary of Defense is somebody I know really well, Donald Rumsfeld, whom I'd worked with in the Ford White House. So I ended up spending the next few days just hanging out with him. I, I'm so uh, compelled by this idea of the photographer, you, actually going toward the tragedy. You know, everybody else is running away. People are trying to get safe. But you, in order to document these moments in history, you run straight into them. There's a shot that you took on the ground at the Pentagon with President Bush and Secretary Rumsfeld at, uh, at, in the aftermath of the 9-11 attack. What was the energy like on the ground at that time? This is the day after 9-11, yeah, so, so now we're September 12th. Right, and you can see where it hit in the background. And uh, I, that's a good picture of them. I mean, the, the, look at the resolve of Bush. I mean, you can see this is him, the President of the United States, seeing it for the first time. Of course, there's a bigger moment when he went up to the uh, World Trade Center and stood up on the rebel, uh, rubble with those uh, firemen and all that. Uh, but here's the Secretary of Defense who was in the building when that happened and helped rescue some people. Uh, and Rumsfeld I know really well. And I know Bush to a degree, but... Uh, Did Rumsfeld seem shaken after the attack? He was, no, Rami is a, a former pilot, and he's a... Um, I don't know, he, he was moved right into action. I mean, I, I think everybody acquitted themselves really well then, and uh, no, he wasn't... Uh, I don't mean off game. I just mean that, you know, this is this wasn't a historic moment. No, that's the kind of like leadership this. you want in a crisis. Uh, at that particular moment and in, in that particular resolution to it. And uh, um, what I saw was great leadership among those people. I mean, you could definitely uh, criticize them for later on going into Iraq and all that. But at this moment... Uh, there was, everybody was pulling on the same end of the rope. Uh, I was with Rumsfeld like nonstop after this uh, in his office, in the meetings, um, as they put together the plan to, to go into Afghanistan after the perpetrators of this uh, hideous crime. And 
you were taking pictures of them as they were doing their war planning. Yes. Did you feel like you were capturing, do you, do you ever feel like you're capturing something um, that makes you self-conscious? Do you feel like you're sometimes just stepping on the line of seeing something that maybe should stay private? No. That's no, your I job. Don't. It's your job to no, capture these I, moments. In fact, I would rather be in the room, which will be the title of my next book at the moment, which is be my big career book of like 50 plus years of photos. In the room also means, uh, I mean, physically in the room, like in the secret meetings or in uh, the theater of war, in the room's a, a, a big term for me. You took a photograph of Cindy McCain at uh, her late husband's funeral, leaning over the coffin, mm. kissing the coffin. It is grief. It is such a depiction of grief was, I imagine the grief in the moment was palpable. I mean, she looked so sad. Is it hard for you to get in the middle of someone's pain like that? That is, uh, that's a great question because I, I it's a tug and pull for me. Uh, the McCain family asked me to be the uh, official photographer for the uh, all the funeral activity. It started in uh, Phoenix and then uh, flew his body back to uh, Washington, D.C. And this was the finale at the U.S. Naval Academy just before um, he was buried. And it was just me. There's no, uh, I mean, it's like me and Mrs. McCain and uh, General Mattis, uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis. And, and John McCain's mother, who's 103 years old, was there. And so this is a really private moment. And you wouldn't be seeing this photo unless she approved uh, the release of it. This is strictly for them. And I guess my philosophy is I'd rather have the picture than not. And then because I did it for them, I wasn't going to do anything with it. Without, these are for them. In this case... Uh, they decided they would release this, uh, which is pretty bold, but I think and uh, the McCain's had a wonderful relationship and and this really does say something uh, about them. And well, you know, I think we get so used to talking about political figures in terms of their positions and the things they're arguing about. We sometimes don't see the humanity of their lives. I mean, John McCain was a remarkable person. He was an honorary guy. I mean, I, sometimes I liked him, sometimes I didn't, but it didn't matter whether I liked him or not, but I respected and admired him. Uh, we, our uh, attachment was Vietnam, but certainly I went through nothing like he did. But I just liked his independent nature and I covered his 2000 campaign. So I got to know Mrs. McCain and uh, the family, the boys. Uh, and for me to be there was uh, deeply personal and, uh, and difficult. It was almost like seeing, you know, one of my close family members uh, buried. Um, and, it, but I really mourned more for the country than for uh, certainly for their family and all that, because we lost somebody who just had a lot of guts and wasn't afraid to say what they thought. And, um, and they, you know, I don't see anyone like that, certainly in the Republican Party, zero. Shifting gears for a moment. March 8th, 1971, two undefeated boxers, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, meet for the first time in the ring. 
you capture this shot of Muhammad Ali stumbling. Joe Frazier won that fight. Um, well, he, I was, think he, by, wasn't it wasn't stumbling, he got knocked down. <laughs> <laughs> it Muhammad a, Ali getting knocked down. That was a that was, that was a, a an enforced stumble. Madison Square Garden. Uh, Frazier ultimately won the fight. What was the energy like in that room? I'll you had like I'll two never, warriors. I will never forget it. It was billed as the fight of the century. Well. Ali had was the reigning world champion and then quit because he uh, had to do with being a conscientious objector and not going into the draft and all that. And he had to step down. And <clears throat> that's when Joe Frazier came along and became the reigning world champion. And so this was the fight where they went at it to see who, who was going to be the, the, the one and only world champion. And this is in the 15th round. They don't even fight 15 rounds anymore. And the left hook caught Ali off guard and he went down. And if you see the film on this, which I didn't see till many years later, this was my last assignment before I went to Vietnam. And uh, this picture was on the front of the New York Times on March 9th, 1971 which was also my 24th birthday. Happy birthday. That's a good birthday present. It was an unbelievable birthday present because the New York Times probably had five or 10 photographers there and the New York Daily News. And I got the front of that too. Uh, I probably was safer in Vietnam than among my colleagues in New York. But this moment was a split second. If you see the film, he's up, he's down. And I just nailed it. And a lot of it had to do with being in the right place, but also getting the shot because if you see the film there was no indication that was going to happen it just happened boom he's down and it was uh there it is and that's, like that by the way is one of my pulitzer prize pictures do you have sort of a sense about when something's just about to happen so no, that you're in not place like that uh, just, neither did ali just, yeah, really. <laughs> he was the guy doing the fighting uh, he caught caught it's just an astonishing moment. And, and you know, I'm not bragging about it because uh, you could be like Neil Leifer's famous photo of Ali and Liston where he's like over him like, ah! And, uh, and then on the other side between Ali's legs is another photographer kind of looking because all he's seen is Ali's rear end. And meanwhile, the other guy gets this incredible photo. So there's a, a lot of bad luck that plays into it. But um, I would love to say I anticipated that, but I would be lying. But I, I got it. I got it. That was the main thing. And, uh, you know, you have to understand, 15 rounds. And, and you would, uh, we, it, in between each round, you, like, would empty your cameras of film, and there would be a messenger take them. They were transmitting from the arena. This is obviously film days. But that night was so huge. Frank Sinatra was at the other side of the ring, was taking pictures for Life magazine. The, the atmosphere was just like a, like a giant circus. It was so much uh, excitement. It, that really was a hell of a night. You're really, you know, your, your business, your industry is helping to keep the rest of us honest because it reminds us that things aren't always as they are now they aren't they haven't always been as they are now like if you look at the next the next image we've never seen this before we haven't seen it since Correct. this is president gerald ford voluntarily testifying before congress 
after he'd pardoned Nixon because he wanted to take it upon himself to explain to the country why he did that. Did you have a sense of the momentousness of that moment yes. when you were shooting it? Yeah, that. So I just had a big exhibition at the Ford Library in um, uh, uh, Grand Rapids, uh, Ford Museum, I should say. And when I was going through to pick out photos for it, this is one of the ones that we made really big, like as big as this uh, screen. my little Tanya Acker show? Because I was so, yeah, Tanya Acker show <laughs> on a pod near you. Uh, so, uh, but here's the seal. Here's this guy who's the president of the United States sitting in front of the uh, Judiciary Committee, Democrat-controlled uh, committee, by himself, there are no lawyers to decide. In fact, all those guys in the background on the right are reporters. Those are, and then he's got staff on the left. But he's answering every single question. It was the first time since Abraham Lincoln, and the last time that a U.S. president has testified before Congress. Now, I'd love to see Donald Trump do that. Good What's the luck. likelihood of that? Good luck. Ain't going to happen. And uh, and that was a very controversial thing for him, the pardon of Nixon. It, it totally tanked his popularity, um, uh, which was very high. Everybody was glad to see Nixon go. And so he inherited some goodwill there, which he, like 30 days later after the pardon of Nixon, he uh, uh, went into the tank. The moment is really, really important. And you pointed out the low probability, um, sort of based on his statements to the media, of President Trump ever doing something like this. But I think many the, other, odds, uh, the odds are zero to none, I believe. But what this photo does is remind us is that the present reality that we're in, you know, the rules haven't always been uh, as they as they seem to be now. Let's and that, the- that's what, <clears throat> when I did that, I mean, when I uh, put together the exhibition, it was, uh, uh, that was clear. That's why I wanted that picture to be big. This is like a, actually one of the most important moments of the Ford presidency. And, but he did it. And I remember all the discussions about this before he decided to do it. <clears throat> you could not compel the president to testify. But he was a former congressman. He, he was a man of the House. He had been in there since 1948. He believed in the institution. He loved the institution. His... his he, he did not aspire to be president of the United States. He wanted his dream was to be Speaker of the House of Representatives. Uh, that was the, but it obviously never happened because uh, he was always in the minority. And he showed up on his own voluntarily to do it. I, it was a brave act. I mean, you look at bravery in the chief executive's office, that was right up there. And then speaking of uh, <clears throat> brave acts, I don't know if I'd call this brave. I think it's kind of. Um, it's mischievous. Kind of, yeah, it's fun, mischievous, yes. fun mischievousness. Uh, First Lady Betty Ford on the table. Uh, who would ever thought that like a First Lady would be dancing on the table? Why was she on that table? Well, uh, actually, it kind it's of such mim- a great picture. <clears throat> it kind of mimics uh, her husband testified before Congress the first <laughs> and last time you're ever going to see that shot. We it's walked fabulous. by, this is the day before they left office. Uh, and she's so like, whatever, Jan- I'm on the table. <laughs> January 19th, uh, 1977, uh, uh, Mrs. Ford was going around the West Wing saying goodbye to people. And we walked by the empty cabinet room. Now, that's a room that is a male domain or mainly had been up to then. I think 
maybe two or three women had ever sat at that table as cabinet officers. Mrs. Ford was a feminist. She was a supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment. And we walked in and she said, you know, I've always wanted to dance on the cabinet room table. <laughs> and there were a couple Secret Service agents, a couple staff, and they thought she was kidding. And, and I, I looked at her, I thought, she's going to do it. And um, she kicked off her shoes. She got up there. She's a former Martha Graham dancer and didn't really dance, but just posed and then hopped off and said, well, I think that'll about do it for this place. Yeah, but she planted the feminist flag right in the middle of that cabinet room table. And to me, it's a great moment because it is truly who she is. She and I were very close. She's out of out of everybody I've met in my life. I probably admire her more than anyone because mm. she stood up and, and, and talked about having the breast cancer and the surgery. She admitted to alcohol drug problems and was an open book. She was very Very honest. few people were like that. And President Ford stood with her, too. It wasn't just her on her own. And it made it easier for other people to totally. share their stories. And I don't that. know. I mean, at that point in 19, uh, well, when she had breast cancer, it was 1974. Very few women were talking about it. And so that did lead to a lot of women getting examinations that probably saved a lot of lives. You captured this moment uh, at the, the signing the of the room. Camp David Accords. Egyptian President Anwar Sadat, U.S. President Jimmy Carter, Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin. Uh, this laid the groundwork for peace between Egypt and Israel. It was intended to lay the groundwork for peace in day, the Middle the East. Yep. Uh, was there a lot of hope in that room at the time? Were people feeling optimistic? There was a lot of hope, and, and <clears throat> this was, I think, uh, Jimmy Carter's greatest achievement as the President of the United States. Um, getting and it took Menachem Begin, who was a very uh, conservative Israeli prime minister, had been in the Ergun, uh, the group that fought against the British uh, in the in the forty eight, uh, and Anwar Sadat, who was just a bigger than life character. And uh, this is in the East Room of the, of the uh, White House. They did the signing ceremony outside a separate occasion, but this really shows you what happened. Had to be Carter's greatest uh, moment, and I think Begin's and Sadat's also, and it's held up. It also, I should add, cost Anwar Sadat his life. Uh, he was subsequently it was assassinated. Dealing with the Israelis that that was uh, he was assassinated by uh, Islamic fundamentalist uh, uh, people. You seem to be able to get people to trust you. I. The shot of you in the room with uh, well, Bush and Cheney. Trust me, I trust right? you completely. Right, yeah. I'll tell you anything. I'd like $100. <laughs> <laughs> but the shot of you on election night 2000 with uh, then Governor Bush, uh, Cheney, their wives, brothers are there. They look nervous. I mean, they look as nervous. nervous and on the edge of their seats as they clearly are because that election was not decided that night. That is not a lie, that picture. That was, it's all the nervousness is real. Let's go to the next one. And then you've got this great shot of then Governor Bush standing by himself in the governor's mansion, um, also on election night. The photo of Bush, he's uh, in the governor's mansion in Austin, uh, Texas, reading the speech that he's about ready to go give, uh, uh, accepting the presidency. 
Uh, Al Gore had conceded the election at this point, and uh, everything was fine. Fast forward till later in the evening, and this, the, the picture which I call Ground Zero, of all of them, they were in a, a room in the, in the mansion watching a little tiny TV. Gore had called and taken back the concession <laughs> right before I took this photo. And so what you have as you go around the room are uh, uh, the uh, Governor Bush, the Cheneys, and uh, Don Evans in the middle next to Jeb Bush, who had had a couple of celebratory drinks, but now was 100 uh, uh, percent present. The, yeah, the and, concession and came it's his back. State. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. He's the governor of Florida, which is a state that all of a sudden has gone into uh, like a neutral place like they're not declaring a winner and and it, it was that uh, the, that batch of electoral votes that uh would swing it either way and then in the background former president of the United States George Bush whose kids are right there and one other little note uh, on the far left is uh, right behind Dick Cheney is his daughter Mary and her partner Heather who later got married and were rarely seen in public together. And so this this was not in public. This was a private moment. I was the only photographer in the room for this picture. Why did they let you in? Um, I was with Cheney for the last week of the campaign, and uh, there had been a Time photographer and a Newsweek photographer accompanying Bush, but, and they were allowed in there as long as everything was going well. And when it started going south, they kicked him out. But there wasn't anybody around to kick me out. So you just hung <laughs> so, out. You yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to leave. Wall. That's for sure. That's probably my one of my best political photographs, I think, because it tells the story. It was a big night. You were also present when President Bush met Vladimir Putin. There's a shot of them about to shake hands. This is in Slovenia. And I but. think, wasn't it after this that President Bush said that he saw his eyes or he saw... Uh, Putin's soul he in his eyes. He looked into his soul, saw a good guy or What'd something. What did you see? What did you see when you looked at Putin? Well, I was just hoping to get the picture here. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't soul searching. But I was, in fact, but the funniest line later was when John McCain said, uh, yeah, Bush looked into his soul, saw a good guy. I looked into his soul. I saw three letters, KGB. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining me in part one of my conversation with David Kennerly. Don't forget to join us for part two, where we'll be talking to David about his experiences as a wartime photographer in Vietnam. Don't forget also to go to my website, tanyaackershow.com, so you can actually see this interview and video and see David's pictures. And you should also check out David's website at kennerly.com. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to tune in for part two, and I'll see you soon. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. My editor is Rich Marchuka. My composer is Cole Mitchell. My production assistant is Rachel Robillard. And my interview with David Kennerly was recorded at the Network Studios in Culver City, California. <laughs>